Coming up on today's show. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to but just... But you're gonna, just, you're gonna. <laughs> and over winter, you know, um, it is deer and moose economy in northern Minnesota. But Voyager's Wolf Project, you know, we've documented eating blueberries. Recruitment up north in the northeast and the Arrowhead struggled. Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I I knew you were going to go there. I'm going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, really? show is brought to you by Hay Bale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Tazan Lake Lodge in northwest Saskatchewan. For trophy lake trout in northern Pike, go to tazanlake.com. By Otter Tail County. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, welcome to the show. I'm Brett Amundsen. We've got a we've got a good one for you today. I think it's a really interesting topic. It's one that so many people, whether they're in the outdoor world or not, uh, seem to have an opinion on. It's kind of an, an emotional topic for a, for a lot of people, and we're gonna we're gonna look at some of the emotion of it, but we're gonna try to take a lot of the emotion out of the conversation and just talk about the the realistic the practicality the the nuts and bolts of wolves in Minnesota. What's going on with them? What is happening with the delisting from the endangered species list? What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to be able to uh, have a hunting and trapping season on here again, uh, on them in here in Minnesota, again, in the Great Lakes region? Does that mean uh, there are some other management tools? What's the DNR going to do about it? Are they happy to have control uh, of the animals in their state once again we'll find out and also what other research is going on there's been some uh, some very interesting research projects happening in northern minnesota in regards to wolves we're going to talk about that we'll also discuss the relationship with deer in minnesota as we gear up for uh the gun deer season here in minnesota so we're going to bring on our guests right now first of all we have craig engwall he's the executive director of the minnesota deer hunters association craig thanks for coming back Hey, good to see you, Brett. Good to see you. Also, uh, we have Dave Olfeld. He's the Fish and Wildlife Division Director at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks, Brett. And also, Dr. Joe Bump. He's uh, with the University of Minnesota. Your full title would take us uh, half the show to get through. (laughs) But uh, tell us what you do there at the University of Minnesota, Joe. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, first of all, for having me on, Brett. You bet. Um, I, I teach wildlife management, wildlife ecology classes and conservation biology, and I work at that intersection of kind of wildlife management and conservation. Uh, so uh, part of my lab is is working on the Voyager's Wolf Project, uh, and that's a, a great, great study here in Minnesota in collaboration with the National Park Service. Well, hopefully we get LCCMR figured out here soon so you guys can get some funding again. I, I know how you feel. We're in the same boat with Prairie Sportsmen, so hopefully that Yeah, gets- we've had we've had great support from my, in the Environmental Natural Resource Trust Fund and we hope it continues if we can get it worked out for the for the near future. Very good. Well, let's let's go right into it. Uh, Dave, let's start with you because from uh, from the DNR standpoint, I know you just basically do 
what you're what you're told to do, I guess, in a sense, maybe this isn't the best way to say it, but but the feds, the feds put the wolves back on the endangered species list a few years back. We had three years of hunting and fishing. And in some private conversations I've had with different members of the DNR, uh, they wanted they did not want to give up control of management of wolves and, and rightfully so. And it's got to be nice to be able to have those back under your control, I'm sure. Well, uh, Brad, it hasn't happened yet. The, you know, what happened last week is the, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced its decision to delist the wolves in the lower 48. In, in Minnesota, wolves have been threatened, classified as threatened. And uh, actually yesterday, the announcement um, got posted in the Federal Register, and so the clock starts ticking now in 60 days on January 4th is when the rule would take effect. So nothing's really happened yet, um, but uh, but to your question, you know, you know we've we've um, we managed we've been managing wolves all along. We don't we haven't had the sort of a full suite of management tools available to us, but we've been managing wolves in cooperation with the, the federal government. And we, as you mentioned, we have a history of, of three years back uh, in the mid-teens of having full management authority and, and uh, are confident that. Uh, if uh, if um, you know things stay on the course that they are on, that uh, we can we can manage wolves for their long term sustainability in the state. Were you surprised when that announcement came out, like everybody else in the country, the other day? Well, the the feds appro- uh, proposed their rule uh, over a year ago, so they've been signaling that you know it's imminent, imminent, imminent. Um, and so at some point you sort of start, stop paying attention to what imminent right. is. And so we've been expecting something, um, uh, whether or not it would have happened <clears throat> last, uh, last Thursday or not. I mean, that's, that's, that's well, speculation. I, I remember at the DNR round table last year, we, there was rumors going around that that was, that it was going to come in March. I thought, uh, but those were the signals at the time. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, so it finally happens. And then. Because of that, uh, in 2019, the DNR revisited the wolf management plan, correct? And there was going to be a public opinion uh, comment period through the beginning of November, and that's been extended? So we started, and, and Joel, I, I forgive me, I think you're on our either a technical committee or advisory committee. Which, which, which one? I'm part of the technical committee. Okay. So about a year ago, we we kicked off a process to refresh the wolf plan. The wolf plan, we have a plan in place, but it was signed in 2001. So it's it's time to refresh it. So we kicked that off in, in uh, the fall, put together a technical committee that, that Joe is part of. We have a, a citizen um, um, advisory committee as a, a well. And uh, so there's been well, and then COVID hit, so that kind of threw a little wrench in actually how do you get together and do stuff. So we've been working on that over the summer. We've had the committees working. We've had some some virtual open houses. And then right now there is an uh, opportunity on our website to provide comments or input rather on wolf, wolf management in general. We don't have a draft plan yet. Um, we, we are hoping to have uh, something for folks to respond to a, a written document for folks to respond to um, by the end of the year, early next year. And then again, that would go out for public comment and review. What have you been hearing from people about this? Uh, 
about which part of a wolf wolf management plan or just wolves in general or yeah uh, I, I guess the the delisting and then um, you know I'm sure you people say well you got to get a hunting season going again I mean uh, everybody seems to have some sort of opinion are you are you hearing some of the same things or are you hearing a, a stuff all across the board this, it's all across the board I, I'm hearing from folks that think there's you know when's the hunt going to start and then I had I had uh Somebody that I haven't heard from since college days tracked me down, and he wrote this impassioned uh, email about uh, how how wrong the delisting decision was. So it's it's all over the board. Hmm. So the new common period goes through November twentieth, correct? Yes. And after you, that closes, how long of a review process or how long of a process will you go through before you enact new a new management plan? Well, well, again, we don't we don't actually have we're using that input that we're asking for right now to help inform what is in the plan. Oh, okay. um, so we don't even have a document yet. That document will be coming out, you know, late this late this calendar year, or early next calendar year. Then there will be a, you know, then folks can ask for that, see that, and respond to to management direction proposed management direction that will be in that. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to just, just just for one question. I mean, what are the odds that there, that there wouldn't be um, hunting and trapping as part of the management plan? Well, the plan is going to absolutely have to address hunting and trapping. That's, that's, um, and, and, and perhaps, you know, how it's framed up, I, I don't know yet. But that's clearly a management option, you know, a management decision that is going to be be part of the mix. Um, and so I could see it, it, you know, kind of talking about some of the sideboards, how would decisions be made around opening a season? What are the criteria? When, when would you open it? When might you, when might you stop it? It'd be based on population levels. But, you know, we, we currently have in statute management, you know, the commissioner has by statute authority to um, uh, establish a hunting season. That's how it happened in the mid-teens. So that authority is there right now. Um, and what, but the, it, but that uh, you know there's gonna be there're gonna be a lot of conversations that happen before before decisions made. I'm sure. Well, I, I had an interesting conversation on um, on a radio station last week when the, when the announcement was made. I was asked to come on and do an interview to to give my thoughts on it. And I'm trying to find my notes on it because I'd, uh, I'd looked into, um, like some of the money that were paid, that was paid out, uh, to ranchers and pet owners over the years from the department of agriculture. And I, I want to say it was around a hundred, I think what there's $375,000 every biennium, biennium of appropriations for that somewhere in there. So it's like $150,000 a year gets paid out, I think for wolf depredation. Um, and, and if, if I remember the first year, there was, uh, what, 6,000, I think 6,000 licenses available for 30 bucks a piece for wolf hunters. So $180,000 from licenses versus $150,000 that we're paying out. I, I, I just did some simple math and I thought it's kind of a no brainer to, to bring back a, a hunting season and be able to try to find a way to use some of that money versus, uh, taking money from somewhere else, but that's for a different discussion for, for other well, people. Craig, Craig will be happy to weigh in on where, I, where the wolf fund, funding money is coming from right now. Well, and Craig, I wanted to bring you in next on this uh, discussion anyway, because as uh, executive director of the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association, I'm sure you were you were probably pleased to see uh, the news about the the delisting. 
We were in a nice segue by Dave, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so a couple points to that. So yes, uh, there's money coming out of deer licenses for wolf management, every deer license paid, and that um, we feel should be used for those purposes. And so looking back, though, we, we feel the DNR did a really good job managing the three hunts that took place, and I believe it was 12, 13, and 14. And that was based on a previous delisting that was for the Great Lakes states. Um, I don't think anybody really disputes that the wolf has recovered in Minnesota, according to the numbers that were established in the federal recovery plan and the Minnesota management plan, et cetera. So that, that hunt was done, hunting and trapping, those seasons were done under the current management plan, which we think works. Um, we think it's totally appropriate to update a plan like everything else you do. And I do sit on the advisory committee as well. So Joe and I have kind of both ends covered here. Um, so in our view, you could work towards planning for a season in 2021 while you're updating the plan and go forward. And as we said, we think DNR did a fine job managing those seasons that they had management authority. They still have that authority under statute. So we would like to see something going forward. Do you, do you think that something could happen? In your opinion, Craig, do you think you could see a hunting season next year? We're certainly advocating for that, and that, that's something that the legislature can weigh in on as they're, they are want to do, and that's what DNR will be addressing in the comments. The comments will speak to that. We know that our view isn't the only view out there. As we hear it on the advisory committee, there are a bunch of different views. But we think given the history, given the population of the wolf, given how DNR has managed it, it would be totally appropriate to have a season in 2021. What, um, what have you been hearing from the deer hunters uh, around Minnesota this last week? Uh, they're, they're, as you might expect, they're very anxious to have a season. I mean, one thing, I live up in northern Minnesota, so I, I, the wolves are here all the time. Um, we are a statewide organization, so if you're in southern Minnesota, it isn't quite the same issue, but it resonates with hunters. Um, it's um, definitely wolves can have a localized impact on uh, a deer hunt in a deer area. Um, I know DNR has to look at the broader picture as well and how the wolves interact with deer and other species, moose, you know, it's a big issue with moose as well. So there's a lot of stuff on the table. Um, we believe DNR can manage it. We're glad it's been returned to the state. And uh, we're just looking forward to things happening, hopefully, in 2021. Have you hey, seen hey, Brent. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Dave. Dan, Dan was just uh, putting something on the screen there that um, I would I'd briefly comment on. One of, the, one of the pieces of work that the agency has done in conjunction with the University of Minnesota is a survey of, of Minnesotans' attitudes about wolves and it was a um, social science survey and and one of the groups that we talked to um, is deer hunters so deer hunters uh, cattle producers and then sort of the general public so uh, if you, you want to kind of see how minnesotans are thinking about and feeling about wolves i know you said we didn't want the feelings but but that's sort of the scientific side of the feelings and it kind of clarifies um um, some some very various views about that. So that's a resource. Pull that back up once, Dan. Let's take a look at that just for a second. So what what did you find in that um, in that survey? That uh, so oh, not. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so the main the main three blocks were lives livestock producers, and and they had some of the strongest negative feelings about wolves. Um, 
hunters, deer hunters, um, had a, a slightly different perspective. Uh, we're more likely to say, you know, wolves have a right to exist, but I also think uh, we'll have an opportunity to hunt or trap them. And then uh, the sort of the general public was uh, pretty much opposed to, to any kind of uh, wolf season. And, and the, the attitudes around wolves had more to do about, you know, they, they have a right to exist. They're an important part of the wilderness or ecosystem. So, I mean, this, in a nutshell, those are some of the, you know, just the, 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 the varied perspectives that, that uh, Minnesotans bring to this, uh, this animal. Do you, Craig, let me ask you this question, because I, I already put Dave on the spot once. So I'm going to ask this, this question to you. Do you, sure. do you think that, that there's uh, I'll see if I can bring it back to him as gracefully as he did to me. <laughs> do you think there needs to be, um, do you think that residents who don't hunt that, may not agree with a hunting season as much as the, say the hunting public does. Do you think there needs to be more education for those people or why do you think they have that opinion? Oh, I can't, I can't speak for them, but they certainly, their opinion is part of the mix as we move forward on any management of any game or management of land, what have you. I mean, as Dave knows, you can have disputes about forest management or management of wildlife management areas, whether they should be grazed or not, all those things. And you've got a lot of different players at the table and they, they inform the decision making. So I'm not surprised they're differing views. Uh, I can't speak to what motivates them, but, but, but there's I'll, nothing wrong with these. I, I No, and they're, you're right. There's no, Everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I'll put this one on me. I will say that I feel like sometimes the strongest uh, voices in opposition are ones that don't ever step foot outside the city, you know, or don't that, that wouldn't have, say when you, when you talk about grazing on a WMA that wouldn't have a stake in that game. Like they'd never step foot on a WMA. They wouldn't have cattle to put out there. They're not pheasant hunters. I feel like there are sometimes some very loud voices that are just like, that's a majestic animal that, that I, I see in movies and not saying that their opinion should be discounted, but it's so hard to take, for me, it's so hard to take their opinions uh, with some sort of validation when I feel like they don't know all the facts. Maybe maybe that's well, the best way to say it. And I'd say the best thing you could do is you, I don't mean you personally, but we could do is have an engaging discussion and try to get across where we're coming from. Um, you can have those discussions, whether it's uh, dairy products coming from the store, they actually come from Macau, you know? Um, or cutting trees. I mean, people look at a view shed when they're driving along a highway and they think the trees are beautiful, but if you don't manage those trees, you're gonna have issues in the forest with disease and forest fires, what have you. So it's, it's really being able to listen to each other and talk and explain where you're coming from and hopefully you have an opportunity to have some open eyes and open minds. Well, and honestly, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this interview is I wanna just try to get the facts out there. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, no, I, because you bring that up and the conversations about um, uh, information, I mean, that's the role all of us that are involved in the Voyager's Wolf Project, uh, that's our mission. You know, we are trying to provide information to, to help any stakeholder, any management group make informed decisions about wolf management. Yeah, and, and we're really focusing on an understudied 
um, period in in wolf natural history that the, that six month kind of snow free ice free season and, and learning about um, you know what wolves are doing how they're making a living during that time and it ties into park management it ties into federal or state management um, wolves are controversial species but we're we're trying to provide information um, in response to contribution controversies that 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 can help. And, and we are interested in the application and where we see opportunities for the application of what we're learning and how wolves are moving about the landscape. Um, you know, we're we're eager to try to inform the management. Well, I got to tell you, some of the stuff you guys are doing, I think, is very cool and very interesting. Like I, I support a, a wolf hunting and trapping season and a wolf management uh, plan here in, in the state. But I also think wolves are fascinating animals. And I, I think they're cool to hear them howl when you camp in the Boundary Waters. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to encounter them when I'm walking out of my deer stand in the dark, <laughs> necessarily. But I, I think they're, uh, they're, they're cool animals. I think they're... they're, they're um, I think they're savages at times, you know, I, I, and, and they are, I mean, that's just a wild animal, but I think they're cool. But some of the things that you're finding out in that research, I think is fascinating. Um, uh, two things I want to bring up that I want you to talk about a little bit is w what sure. you're learning about their relationship with beavers. And then yep. uh, there was a video, maybe start with this video. You, there was a video that came out a trail cam video of a wolf catching fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and I got to give a nod to the, the guys in the field, Tom Gable and Austin Homkiss, who who are spending six, seven months out there a year on the ground. Uh, and it's it's really to their credit of observation, their skill and their natural history uh, that we're learning these things. So the two things you mentioned, uh, we're learning that wolves eat a lot of beaver, particularly some wolves. And it's super fascinating to think about who cues in on beaver within a wolf pack? Is it the older ones? Does it take a lot of learning? Uh, but in summer or any ice-free season, uh, beavers are a really good food item for wolves. The second thing we learned, um, and we, the Royal We, these guys really pulled it off in the field. They noticed wolves because they're wearing GPS collars in the study. That's a key bit of, of technical equipment. They noticed them hanging out on these streams. And then when they went to investigate, uh, a lot of evidence for fish eating and we didn't know if they're just scavenging and it's all white suckers running in the spring uh, but what they were able to document is that these wolves are actually hunting there you go hunting um, and and feeding on spawning white suckers um, and we've got more data on this uh, and it's really fascinating you know wolves are adaptable like you said they're they're fascinating and and if they can make a living off an abundant resource like um, uh, uh, spawning suckers, um, it's not, not too surprising, but we were able to document that for the first time. You know, and I think, I think your, your position reflects a lot of what Minnesotans feel like. They, they love their wolves. They're the only state in the lower 48 that kept wolves. And all the wolves that are in Wisconsin and in Michigan um, had protections and good management in Minnesota to, to naturally recolonize. Um, so yeah, we share that fascination. It drives a lot of what we're doing. And between the GPS collars and what trail cams and, and remote cameras are able to, to capture these days. If you go to the Facebook page for Voyager's Wolf Project, that's our main outreach avenue for sharing that with the public, just to bring up that interest, like you mentioned. And, and Tom Gable, if you fire him a question, is awesome about responding. Well, there was, he, 
Sorry, I was just going to say, there's a picture. You Oh, look at that. There's a... Uh, yeah, we... Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, we had this this incredible looking cinnamon black bear. You cruise across the beaver dam. Yeah. Um, so it's it's mostly wolves on the Voyager's Wolf, uh, Voyager's Wolf Project Facebook page, but we also share that we've had lynx, we've had bobcat. Yeah, good stuff. There was a post. Uh, it was probably, gosh, probably a year ago, last winter, maybe. Of uh, it, it was. Um, See if I can if I can explain this. It it was a map graphic and it showed all the movements from the collared wolves and it just showed how the packs interact or or don't interact with each other and how you can see straight lines where the where the packs uh, have their territories. Yeah, it's a it was a wonderful visualization that Tom put together on wolf territoriality, right? So we get this great state support for the through the LCCMR to get the collars, get them out there. We get great partnership and uh, support from National Park Service to work with us because these are all wolves that are in and out of Voyagers National Park. That's a fantastic graphic showing you a bunch of the pack territories. Um, but we get, and what's what's special about this project is we are recording a location uh, of our collared wolves every 20 minutes. So we get unprecedented detail on wolf movements. And then we could plot those movements and it just shows how these individuals really maintain their territories and very rarely if they're if they're part of the pack are they straying into other territories you know that's dangerous for a wolf to be on another wolf's turf well it looks like the paradise pack is yeah. is it's testing the waters a little bit <laughs> yeah you know uh yeah right it's um it's trying to find a little space there it appears in between between some others um and what i'll what i'll mention there is you know that's a pair right now and sure. a pair we can we can call a pack um so they're they're trying to figure out and th this is what wolves do that these shift you know a little bit maybe annually it depends on if there's turnover the wolf dies um, or who, who uh, disperses into the area and tries to carve out some real estate. I want to talk, uh, maybe dispel some myths or talk about some of the most frequently discussed topics uh, when it comes to wolves and about population um, because population definitely ebbs and flows. Uh, but there's discussion about a landscape only being able to hold so many wolves. What have you found in your research uh, when it, when you can discuss population trends like that? Yeah, it, you know what? It really depends on the food that's available. That's the simplest way I can say it. If you go up north, you know, Arctic Circle wolves, massive territories because their food sources are are, you know, dispersed and much lower in other areas. Uh, when wolves are in areas with a lot of prey biomass on the landscape, they can pack in and their territories tend to shrink. So uh, biologists have worked out that if you look at kind of the food availability and the territory size, uh, if there's high food availability, territories on average are smaller. If there's um, low food availability, territories on average are a lot larger. Um, you know, when we're teaching about this, we might say, think of a territory as kind of the refrigerator where the where the wolves are, are making their living when it comes to uh, what they need to survive. Now, that kind of discounts what might be available because of development or habitat loss or or urban, you know, um, uh, those sort of things. But, um, yeah, wolves are flexible 
uh, in terms of territory size, depending on food availability. We're, we're learning a little bit more about their food. Obviously, we talked about the beaver and, yep. and the fish, too, the suckers. Uh, a lot of people think they're just out there eating all our deer and moose. And obviously, they're, they are definitely eating some of the deer and moose out there. But yep. they're, they, they eat whatever they can find, right? Yeah, I, I think you, you, that, that's a great, great way of thinking about it. They're going to take advantage of any calories on the landscape that are easily had. Um, and over winter, you know, um, it is deer and moose economy in northern Minnesota. But Voyager's Wolf Project, you know, we've documented eating blueberries. Um, I've, I've observed wolves in the past eating apples. Uh, you know, you can pick through their scat and find all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's papers out there that have wolves eating, you know, a bunch of grasshoppers when they're hyperabundant. So they're, they're, um, they're going to take advantage of resource abundance and the summer diets, uh, because they're more challenging to study in the Northwoods, um, are where we're learning some of these new, new cool bits of natural history. Um, uh, I could, I could watch these videos all day. I think I, yeah. watching them eat, eat blueberries. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, eating deer and moose or, or any other uh, food source that they find, you'll hear people say that they're just out there killing for sport. And when somebody says that to you, what do you tell them? Um, I tell them they usually return, you know, to kills, particularly if it's in winter. Um, and, and we find that on initial observations, you know, when a carcass looks like it's not that well utilized, you know, wolves are not different than, than a lot of species, including ourselves. They're going to high grade, but they might return. Um, we find kills that are uh, years old that wolves return to chew on the bones and see what they can get and then move on. Hmm. Um, so that's one observation. And then I'll acknowledge, you know, that sometimes, usually in like these polar vortex winters or when um, uh, there's there's a really tough time and prey appear to be really vulnerable um, that, that you do see spikes in kill rates um, and maybe less initial utilization. Um, and I think that's where that impression comes from, where they, you know, they, they seem to eat the organs and moved on or something like that. Um, I would say keep watching, set up a trail cam and see if they come back. That'd be cool. That would be cool to have a trail cam on a, on a kill site like that. Um, Craig, we had a pretty decent winter last year, pretty decent spring for wildlife. Pheasant numbers where I'm at are up. Uh, a, a lot of wildlife, I think. I've seen tur more turkeys out here than I've seen in the last few years as well. How did our deer fare in the last year? You know, you've talked about the South and you highlight that Minnesota is just such a big different state with, uh, so I live in Northern Itasca County and we had a lot of snow uh, early through New Year, uh, very deep snow all year. And so the fun recruitment up north in the northeast and the Arrowhead struggled. I mean, we're, our numbers are not great. They had, I don't expect them to be improved at all um, in this area. But if you're in that ag transition zone, um, there's so many deer, I wish, I wish they could balance them out up here a little bit. <laughs> but um, it really depends where you are. I think overall we'll have a, a solid season. I think we'll have hopefully a good harvest number for a couple of reasons. Uh, the weather looks pretty good going into this opening weekend and hunter numbers and Dave can speak to this. The last I heard they were up about 
8% in deer license purchases, reflecting what we've seen in fishing and small game licenses and other outdoor activities, which is about the only positive I can think of of our last eight months yeah. and what we've all been dealing with. Um, so we'll see where those numbers end up, and hopefully we'll get more people in the woods and we can retain them and keep them as outdoors people. My gosh, there's pheasant hunters everywhere. Uh, and I know waterfall hunters everywhere. I know guys that went, Dan, maybe you went to North Dakota. There's, there was waterfall guys all over that state. So I bet you'll, you'll hear a lot of, uh, as long as there's deer around, I bet you'll hear a lot of bang on Saturday morning. Um, Dave, is that what you're hearing? A lot of license sales? Yeah, I just, uh, I figured you're going to ask this question. So I looked up the numbers from a couple days ago and, um, uh, 225,000 firearms licenses sold to date, which is up um, about 6% from the same time last year. You got to go back to 2016 to have have license sales, uh, you know, at the same same day, you know, number of days before the opener. Uh, but, you know, the, many, many, many people are going to be buying their, their licenses today, <laughs> tomorrow, and Friday. So. And you could plan ahead and get a lifetime license like me, then you don't have to worry about it. There you go. I like it. Craig, can you believe we've gone uh, this long on the show so far talking mostly about wolves, but also about deer and haven't brought up chronic wasting disease at all yet? Yeah. And, and, and I know Dave and I want him to chime in on this too. So one of the things um, we're looking at is the, the testing in the areas, the CWD zones. Um, and the challenges that the pandemic has brought where there's no mandatory testing this year. And I know that the voluntary testing has come up somewhat short. We're trying to encourage as many people, to part hunters to participate as we can because we need that good data. Um, they and, and again, Dave, you can speak to this about what Barb and the crew are doing, but they can extend that sampling, but that's not the best answer. The best answer would be to get a good verifiable data uh, from this year to help in seeing what's happening on the landscape. Uh, I'm also working on the, the Board of Animal Health is doing some amend, proposed amendments to their rules governing captive cervids. Um, I, I don't think it's a surprise we're not really enamored with how they're regulating the captive side of the world. Um, we appreciate the efforts of DNR and being aggressive on the wild deer side, but we don't think the state we're doing as well on the captive side. Hmm. Uh, what do you think, Dave, has there been any more discussion about um, expanding rifles into the southern part of the state? You know, that was a topic in the legislature last year, and then things went goofy, and I'm not sure that's, you know. Things went goofy sure in the legislature? No. Well, and that was, and COVID, and, and then the, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's, uh, I can't say whether it's going to come up again uh, or not this year. And, and uh, um, you know, we're, we're working on our policy package. I'm not able to comment on that until the governor uh, advances it. But, you know, it, 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 it could certainly uh, come up again. Well, just for anybody listening, uh, and whenever I've talked about this uh, in the past, we always thought, it was because it was flatter and not as many trees in the southern part of the state. And that's why rifles weren't allowed. But every time I, I asked the DNR about it, they said, well, no, it was just we just wanted to make it a little bit more difficult for you to shoot deer in the southern part of the state. So it, it, it's an interesting it's a it's a small topic, but it's an interesting one. And I think there's there were some uh, myths about 
um, about the use of, of rifles in the southern part of the state. So I, th- I think you'd see a lot of I think you'd see a lot of support for that. You know, I'll jump in, Brett, too, that in our organization that came up and we had that discussion, a lively discussion. Um, and we were informed by what DNR enforcement, uh, others were staying, what, saying what other states have done and what they've seen with uh, no increase in accidents. So uh, a majority of our membership supported that change if it comes to the table. Well, if the amount of- I will have to yeah. say that- I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, last last spring and winter, the, some, I got some pretty impassioned phone calls from people that didn't want to see it changed. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, so former uh, former DNR people that said, uh, retired DNR people that said, no, that, that story about it being for uh, you know protecting deer, that's not the whole story. So I'm, I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's different narratives out there anyway. And so it'll be it'll be a good conversation and uh, and we'll, we'll see where it heads. Joe, hey, I'd like to chime in if that's cool, Brett. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because it relates to an opportunity, a really unique opportunity for hunters to help out when it comes to understanding uh, um, some of the dynamics that might connect uh, wildlife species and CWD. So we got a project going in the lab um, that's called the Awful OFFAL Wildlife Watching Project. I sent uh, a link to it in the chat there uh, if you want to bring it up. And we're really interested in partnering with deer hunters to do this, um, to help us monitor right after they field dress the animal, if, if they feel field dress it in the wild, and uh, if they can set up a camera. Um, and a lot of hunters have cameras because we want to know for about a month period who visits that site. Um, so. That'll help us better understand the scavenging community that visits that site. And we actually have deer documented visiting gut piles and consuming gut piles. So it has implications for CWD transmission. It has implications for lead exposure uh, to broader species. And these are important questions for applied wildlife management. So if Minnesota hunters, deer hunters, you know, want to... add to what they do already in terms of reporting and helping out. Um, they can participate in this project by getting a camera out on their gut piles. We have limited resources to provide some cameras. We're working with Craig and MDHA uh, was was a, a letter writer and supporter for trying to get this project funded through the LCCMR this past year. We got great feedback, just missed, and I think we'll, we'll have another shot at it in the future. Um, so this will be ongoing. And then Hunters can actually help identify what species are in the images um, through this site uh, once we have the data back. So it's a great opportunity. Has there been it's any a project? Have you seen anything in your pictures that made you go, huh, I did not expect to see that? Yeah, a couple times. Well, the, the number of deer that visit a gut pile uh, is a little surprising sometimes. Um, we've, we've got, you know, all the carnivore scavengers you would expect. Um, and, and even the, from, from wolves and bears right on down to, to weasels. Uh, pileated woodpeckers have been on our, our piles. And then there's this really cool observation where owls are in. But what we don't know is if they're coming in and nailing mice that have come around the piles or small mammals or if they're getting a bite or two themselves. Yeah. Neat. Fred, can I say a few things about CWD too? You bet. So uh, Craig articulated that you know the the 
surveillance, the work that we that people might be familiar with for for sampling uh, lymph nodes and using sending those into the lab to get tested for CWD. And and we aren't going to be running uh, the check stations, those crazy crazy mixed up check stations that we've run the last few years because of the the concern over you know spreading COVID you know between our, our workers and workers and hunters and hunters and you know all that kind of stuff so we're asked we have a different approach and it's a, and it's it's relying on volunteers to 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 provide samples actually take take the heads and and put them into uh, um, um, barrels that we have salted around the landscape and we'll collect them and then we take out the lymph nodes so that's that's one part of it and and uh, we we have had awesome compliance when we've had mandatory sampling we don't we don't need or expect that same level of compliance in order to really know where the disease is on the landscape but we we strongly encourage people to participate in that but in terms of managing the disease the managing the spread of the disease you know our, our bedrock um, tools are the uh, you know the, the, the carcass uh, transport rules so the places in the state where we know that CWD is on the landscape in the southeast, um, unfortunately now South Metro and in that area around Brainerd, um, you can't you can't move your deer, um, a whole deer, without getting it without getting a, a not positive test, or not detected test rather, or or you know quartering it out. So please pay attention to that. It's it's um, movement of carcasses, live or dead, is is one of the primary ways that that CWD. Uh, can move long distances on, on the landscape. So really, please pay attention to that. And then, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of, a uh, little bit of positive news and some, you know, some other news that uh, about CWD in general in the state. Um, we had a, we had a surveillance area in Litchfield area, you know, uh, part of the state uh, for the last three years. We did three years of sampling there, um, found no disease in the wild. So we've, we've, we don't need to sample there anymore. Mm, nice, um, good. This is our third year in the Brainerd area. We have we we found that one deer three winters ago. Haven't had another one despite many thousands of deer sampled. So fingers crossed there. Um, the prevalence rate in the southeast is staying, you know, pretty. It's one percentish, something like that, which is not great, but it's not exploding. Yeah. What's um, but we have. You know, we had a, 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 a farm near Alex that tested positive this year. So now we have surveillance around that. A farm in Pine County that tested positive. So now we have surveillance around that. And then that deer in the wild in Farmington. And, and in the wild, of course, that's a serious concern. So um, we're, we're, still, we're still managing aggressively, um, using the tools in the toolbox, the, the carcass transport, the, the feeding restrictions, um, and and uh, um, keeping keeping the pedal to the metal to the extent we can. For those people that shoot a deer in those areas where there's car- carcass movement restrictions, uh, and they get a test, how long do they have to wait for that test? And what what do they it, uh, what do they um, what can they do with their deer in the meantime? Well, so there's there's options. One is they can quarter it out immediately and and take that meat uh, as long as you don't take the head and the spine out. You can you can uh, uh, take your meat with you, and we actually have um, butchering stations set up uh, in and and dumpsters in uh, strategic places in those in those areas of the state where CWD is in the wild to help hunters with that. So that's one option. 
The other is, as you said, um, not taking it out of the zone and, 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 and waiting for the sample results to come back. Um, and we turn those around uh, quickly. Um, it's depend. It, we depend a lot on how fast the lab can turn it around. We have a we have a new lab this year because we because of some concerns last year and the, had an opportunity to change. So. Um, our, our, our preferred time frame is like three-day turnaround, um, but um, at, at crush periods like right after opening weekend, or, um, that might be a little bit longer. So we, we, we staff, you know, we staff up to uh, process samples based on what we expect um, the harvest to be. So opening weekend, we're, it's pretty much all hands on deck. People are going to be running around collecting heads out of barrels and taking them to garages and, and shops and, and cutting out lymph nodes and, and packaging up to send to the lab. Important work. Unfortunately, that has yep. to be done. Important work. Yep. Um, Thanks for letting me, letting me pontificate there. Uh, absolutely, of course. I want to back up just one second to uh, something that Joe was talking about, uh, and that comes to what what's feeding on some of these carcasses and when it comes to lead, like we filmed a segment for Prairie Sportsman last year on um, uh, it was copper versus lead when it when it comes to uh, mainly mainly big game or mainly whitetail because that's what we have here in Minnesota. But the the amount of fragmentation of lead in some of the some of that meat. I mean, first of all, how how are we not? Con- obviously, we're consuming some of that. You try to cut around it. But the difference between that copper bullet and that lead bullet, like I, for a long time, it, it, I, I was probably one of those guys too that hear about, oh yeah, copper's better or whatever, but lead is cheap and it's effective and this and that until I saw it, until I saw the actual display of what it does and how much lead goes splinters throughout your meat. I mean, I like, I wanted to go throw all my lead in the garbage, you know, cause uh, I don't gun hunt as much as I used. In fact, I haven't gun hunted for a number of years, but I still have a couple of boxes of cartridges, you know, and in the closet of lead bullets. I don't, I, I'll give them away. If somebody else wants them. I don't, I don't want to shoot lead anymore. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Brett, particularly when it comes to the hunting. But, you know, I, I've got students ask me this question all the time. What do I do? And I say, look, you can take that all to the range. It's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you, you blow through it out, go through your lead and drop in just a couple of the expensive ones. Right. Um, and then you're set for the field. I mean, that's what that's what I do. But, yeah, it's a powerful demonstration when you see the size of the fragmentation and and the lead dust that can can permeate permeate, um, you know, through an animal. Yeah. Well, and, and not just that, like I've, I shoot a lot of pheasants and I've shot lead for a long time at pheasants. And I know there's, there's discussions about the effect of eating, you know, a lead pellet for a human versus say a a bald eagle or something like that. But I, there's a couple, like I started shooting this, this copper plated bismuth. I, I did, I, I just did a couple of videos for boss shot shells where we were doing some pattern testing and the, the amount I, just everything about it, like the non-toxicity of it, they'd be able to shoot yep. it on, on federal lands and uh, state lands as well. And then the, the pattern density and, and the knockdown power of it, like I'm going, I'm just getting rid of all lead for everything I do. And Craig, what's the position for, for MDHA and, you know, what are you hearing from deer hunters out there as far as, I mean, nobody wants to mandate lead usage. And I know the DNR has discussed maybe switching to all non-toxic on WMAs and state lands as well. And, um, 
I wasn't necessarily for that. I'm not necessarily against it now, but I wasn't necessarily for that for a while because it, I, I, from a lot of people that I've talked to, we, we, we'd prefer to see it become a choice made by hunters out there versus a, a mandate. What are you yeah. hearing from deer hunters out there about uh, non-toxic alternatives? And the, you know, I, I, I'm assuming eventually it's gonna, it's gonna be mandated eventually. It's gonna happen. Just how soon yeah, it happens is a question. And you kind of laid out our view as an organization. We we want good information out there. We've run a number of articles in our magazine about non-toxic ammo. Uh, I personally use copper myself. Um, so we put as much info out there for our members and, and deer hunters as possible. We're not big on the mandate side, so we want to let people make their own decision. But if they, you know, you changed your view and others may change theirs. And if they transition on their own, that's great. So we don't have a formal position. Um, well, our position would be that we support voluntary choices, but we want the information out there for hunters to digest. Well, and like that segment that we did, I think it was Brian Hiller that said it uh, from Bemidji, he said, uh, the more education we can do about it, the more examples we can show, the more demand there will be, and that will show manufacturers hey, there's more people wanting these options out there. Let's start making more of it. That's going to bring production costs down. That's going to change the equipment. And right. It's going to make a make it a more affordable option out there. And it's 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 definitely uh, uh, an effective option. I think the price point has been the, been the issue for a lot of hunters out there. But as, as a cost comes down, I think more and more people are going to realize it's a viable option. Uh, I want to bring up one more topic before I let you guys go here. And Dave, maybe maybe you can speak to this. Maybe maybe you have nothing to say about it at this point. But I want to see some elk in the northeast part of Minnesota. When are we going to see that? <laughs> Next year. We well, <laughs> uh, the the funnel uh, band has, as you well, I'm sure you've talked about it on your show, uh, as you well know, has done some preliminary work on, on uh, the idea of reintroducing elk in, in northeastern Minnesota. Um, we are in conversations with them. Um, there's a long way to go, and it's not going to be next yeah. year for sure. Right. But, uh, you know, just the idea of where uh, where elk are going to, you know, they're not going to stay where they're put. You know, they're big animals. <laughs> they're going right. to move around. Um, so um, we have, uh, there are, there's issues with with landowner tolerance in in northwestern Minnesota. Right. I'm not so sure. I'm convinced that they're that different in northeastern Minnesota. Uh, but but again, those are conversations that will happen. And then you know, on top of that, uh, disease concerns. So hmm. um, it'll it'll uh, it'll be a while. But but conversations ongoing. Craig, how does MDHA feel about elk reintroduction in the northeast? Yeah, you know we so we submitted a letter of support for Fond du Lac, uh, for LCCMR funding to study the issue, because uh, it is a, it's, elk are a great species and we have a lot of members who hunt them and are interested in them. Um, but we wanted to let that process take its course. So um, we want to see where that goes, how the public feels about it. And so that pretty much captures where we are. One thing we did, and we've been pretty aggressive and this goes back to CWD. We. As an organization, we've stated that we're opposed to any interstate movement of cervids, whether they're live or, excuse me, whether they're captive or wild. Um, so, you know, we take CWD seriously. We, we Now that we do have elk in Minnesota, that might be a possibility. But um, 
we're paying attention to it. We're interested, but we haven't taken a final position on whether that be a good thing or a bad thing. I think for sure the the animals would come from the Northwest, which would make the landowners up there probably happy to see those some of those populations uh, um, shrink just a hair. And then, um, you know, I think the Wisconsin reintroduction, if I remember correctly, when they first started uh, reintroducing elk in Wisconsin, it was actually uh, a research project with with one of the universities, if I remember, it was something. And then after a number of years, when it was successful, the DNR eventually took it over. So, uh, Joe, I think I got another project for you. Oh, yeah. And well, my colleagues are on it. They're the ones doing the habitat assessment. Um, so it, the U is involved and, and there to kind of do that research. And, and we do collaborate. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Very good. Well, uh, all interesting stuff. Very uh, um, topics that are important, I think, to a lot of outdoorsmen and non-outdoors people, I think I'm supposed to say now, outdoors uh, enthusiasts. How about that? Uh, Across the state and also people that are not necessarily outdoors enthusiasts. Uh, Obviously, wolves are important to a lot of people in the state. So I just want to get the facts out there and talk about what's been happening and what's coming down the line. Uh, Gentlemen, I really appreciate uh, all of your insight and all the work that you guys do keep up the good work and thanks for the time here on the show pleasure to be here everybody have a great season and a safe season yeah thank you brad our pleasure this has been the finding fur and feathers hunting podcast part of the sporting journal radio family subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com looking for fall adventure Might as well pick a place with over 1,000 lakes. Ottertail County, Minnesota is in the middle of everywhere, offers a simpler pace, and has something for everyone. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. As we all navigate through the tough times of 2020, finding new ways to enjoy summer has become a way of life. If you're searching for the perfect getaway this summer, look no further than the walleye capital of the world, Lake of the Woods. Fish the Rainy River, Big Traverse Bay, and don't forget you can still experience the uniqueness of the Northwest Angle. For your best chance to catch big fish, go where the big fish are, Lake of the Woods. Plan your trip at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. If Trophy Lake Trout and Monster Northern Pike are on your list this summer, book a trip to Tazan Lake Lodge in northwestern Saskatchewan. Everything from numbers to big fish. See pictures, videos, and more at tazanlake.com. This is quite the fishery. Our five-star chef will feed you well after a day of chasing giants on Tazan Lake. Dream come true. Get rates, dates, and more of what you can expect. It could be the best fish you've ever had in your life. At tazanlake.com. That's tazanlake.com. Tazan Lake Lodge is a proud partner of Tourism Saskatchewan.